Hello and welcome to Help Me Buy Property Podcast. Today we are going to discuss if this is a good time to invest. Uh, it's a million dollar questions. You know, we are going to talk about the trends that we are seeing in the industry, what rental crisis really means and why do people keep referring to it getting worse? How many more interest rate rises are coming through in the pipeline and what does that really mean for the market? And lastly, what is the buying window of opportunity? Um, what areas to invest in, what areas to not invest in? And with that, let's give a big round of applause to my lovely co-host, Miss Cheryl Leon. Cheryl, happy Friday. And the crowd grows wild. Good morning. Hey, Moss. How are you doing? This is such a a cool um, topic to be talking about, especially right now when, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of really sort of anxious, negative consumer confidence. 100%. I mean, we're, uh, and, and obviously there's markets within within markets, but the markets, you know, especially like, you know, Queensland where, where I'm in at the moment, where it was used to be crowds and everything, and I'm seeing like it's crickets yes. in some places. Yes, yes, definitely. And, and the, question, the question is, you know, is it a good time to buy mm. or so we're going to be highlighting a few few of the things to consider, and then I guess at the end of it, we'll make some sort of a assumption and some thoughts around what what we think. Definitely, definitely. I think this is more of like the analysis of should we be be, be buying, right? You know, we are looking at various different drivers yeah. and you know unpacking some of these conversations that are happening um, in different silos, and so we're bringing it all together, kicking this off. Anyone who asks me that question, I always say to people that I made my best money in times like these. Yeah, and so there is yeah. no doubt about at least that sort of mental and mindset change that these are the times where your fundamentals should be strong and you should be double dipping. And we'll come back and summarize this at yeah. the very end. Let's talk about immigration. I think everyone, the media is talking about immigration. You see buyers agents, you know, property sales agents talking about immigration. Yes. Yeah. Um, China opening its borders. And let's talk a bit about that. What do you think, you know, is happening at that end? Well, I'm seeing this firsthand. You know, I, I know of friends who are overseas and because the borders have opened and because, you know, there, you know, maybe instability in their own countries and so on and so forth, you know, obviously COVID's caused, caused quite a bit of a, a stir and, and put a lot of things on hold. But the fact that there's, there's borrowing, you can borrow from Australian banks. Australia is looked at a safe haven and people are physically moving either back to Australia hmm. or coming to Australia. Definitely. Um, so there's a lot of money. I mean, I, I've, got, I've got a family friend who's basically, you know, he'll be coming in, in, in April and he says, I've got 10 days to buy a property. Wow. wow. <laughs> in cash, <laughs> you know. <laughs> And it's because I need to get money out of my country. So that, I mean, these are conversations that are happening yes. on a daily basis now. Yes. And it is a matter of people just getting money into Australia. Um, and there is monetary policy and we're seeing borrowing policy that is supporting that. I do recall seeing um, in terms of a lending policy regarding not uh, foreign foreign buyers. So. You know that market's opening up, 
mm. and Australia is still looked at as affordable in yeah. some areas. Yeah. And even where it's unaffordable, that it's premium. You know, you've got the you've got the lifestyle, you've got um a stable market where it's not fluctuating all over the place. Definitely. Um so that's definitely that's definitely going to uh, impact and further 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 adding to that you know when you talk about immigration i always split immigration into two sides i see the student immigration you know that is going to cause or is going to cause rental crisis and then you talk about immigration in itself where people are actually migrating to australia right and so yes you know i was reading some of these stats across the board and they were saying that you know 70% of the uh, of the cases that were there pending you know the labor government has basically come in and started you know, giving, you know, these people right to enter into Australia. You know, I have a few friends who waited three years during the COVID time, you know, to get their residencies and come, you know, into, uh, in Australia. And so I believe that there would be a lot of stories where uh, people are coming in into some of these things. You look at um, the treasury forecast, you know, the treasury is talking about more than 300,000 people just migrating this year, you know, 25% higher than any other year. And so, that's, you know, superlicious numbers. These are massive numbers, right? And so if you think about some of these impacts and you combine this with students coming back, you know, Chinese students, Indian students coming back because, you know, now they can study onshore rather than offshore. Yeah. I think the market dynamics yeah. completely changes because we know that, you know, Malaysian, Singapore, China, India, you know, when these students are coming in, the parents are keen to buy properties for these, you know, people. Because, you know, it's an investment yeah. and, you know, uh, and they can just live there, you know, while keeping their cost of living down. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And it's a cycle as well because we've got such a tight rental market. And we've seen this. It gets to a point where, you know, when, when you're paying more in rent than you would in a mortgage, mm. then it gets to a point where people make the decision as to, I might as well buy. Mm. I might as well buy. If it's that expensive to rent, I might as well buy. And so it just kicks off another cycle, right? But the, it does start with that rental rental pressure. And again, with this migration that's coming in, there are going to be more people that, that rent as well yeah. in the meantime mm. while they while they get, you know, get accustomed to where they're living and then they end up buying. So yeah. you can see where that whole knock-on effect happens as Definitely. well. It's a very important point that you make that, you know, especially with the migrations, I know from, you know, countries like, you know, India or Singapore or Dubai, right? You know, these people are mature individuals who've been working, you know, you know half their life in mm. these countries, right? And so when they land Australia, they, these are not poor people, you know, they come with deposits mm -hmm. ready mm -hmm. to go, right? And so uh, it's in their natural soul that, you know, property is a safe heaven. You should always invest in property. They've been buying properties back home. And so naturally, you know, they're like, okay, as soon as I come here, the first thing I do, six months down the track, I buy a property. And so that's yeah. the net migration impact that you would see is causing, uh, you know, or would cause the prices to go up. And that's what media is indicating. I think some of the key yeah. statistics, if we tend to look at it, and I'm talking more from, you know, the, uh, the, the population statements made by um, the Treasury, you know, there are high and low scenarios that they're quoting you know, uh, in relation to the migration scenarios. And so they are saying that by 26, the Australian population can get to either 39.2 million or about $49 million. And so, uh, not dollars, people. And so there is, that's, that's, that's a lot of people, right? You know, between now and 2060. And so, you know, if you, if you track back and think about some of these things, what does that really mean? <laughs> I always say this, that no one, 
in an Australian market wants the prices to go down. Naturally, everyone wants yeah. the prices to go up, right? And so people talk about first-time buyers and they say, oh, we should be helping first-time buyers entering into this space. Technically, they want the prices to be down only when they're buying, right? You know, as soon as they've bought, yeah. you know, they are fingers crossed, I want the prices to go up as well. And so if you look at the market dynamics, you're talking about 70% of the market, which is owner-occupies investors, 30% of the market or less than 30%, even 20% of the market which is first on buyers. And so, of course, if you know, 70 to 80% of the market wants the prices to go up, the prices would go up. And that's the muscle memory that people talk about, right? Because they are the one dictating yeah. and driving the market. The other important point to consider here, and this is going back to my grassroots level, right? And so you look at countries like Dubai, India, Singapore, even UK, yeah. people don't buy first homes. <laughs> you know, there is no sort of, granted notion that you know you are going to be born and this is your birthright of buying your first home okay a lot of these times the houses travel in generations and you get a house passed down through generation right and so i strongly feel that you know the next 20 to 30 years for australia is basically us going through that cycle okay the houses prices would go down to that level of you know um, the, the higher echelons where you know, we're not talking about mm. any more of about first-time buyers because the market is so far outreached from these people. And so we're talking about generational wealth and this, mm. um, this, this, this difference of, you know, people having investment properties versus people, you know, looking for properties would be so massive and so big that, you know, people who have done well in these 20 years would be far ahead of the curve uh, rather yeah. than people who are That's still... Such a, that- you raise such an interesting point there. It's so true. I look, I look at it now from a cultural perspective. I, um, being, you know, coming from a, an Asian culture, it is not, you know, it's very rare for people to go and buy their first homes. I mean, back, back in the days, it is a generational thing. And I'm wondering if we get to that point because we are so ingrained. Um, and the government obviously helps that and so on and so forth because. And we were talking about stamp duty today. My husband asked about why do we pay stamp duty? I'm like, that's not go down that path, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's how the government earns its money. So, you know, it, it needs, it wants transactions to happen. The government wants transactions to happen. And yes. depending on what state, stamp duty makes a lot of money for, yeah. for the government. But so, can I pause um, you there? Can I just it, pause you there? Um, think yeah. about stamp duty. Why is the state government or um, a lot of state governments transitioning from the dependence of you changing hands and transitioning stamp duty into land tax. And so one of the so reasons tax, yeah, yes. I feel is basically that reason because they know that this transactional change would be lower and lower as people, you know, start buying less and yes. less and it's going through the generational wealth. And so yes. they want to put that trigger in that, yeah, well, the property is created, we want money for infinity. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and people are starting to, you know, you get, you get grandparents that live with you. Your, your your children are living there longer and things like that. You know, we've got people who are living, you know, building granny flats and all. So this is it is it is a very interesting transition away from that to a, a longer term land tax um, application. So not only from an affordability point of view, going actually we can make more money this way <laughs> in the long term. Because are we? It'd be interesting. We haven't looked at the statistics in terms of whether there are less transactions in that sense. Are people doing less of those? Is there a longer time that they're actually staying in that one property than it was before? I think I've looked at, I've looked at some of this data more from a Victorian government perspective, you know, while consulting with the Department of Treasury. And I know that an average hold period in Victoria is somewhere around eight years. 
And so, you know, that period has actually gone up. It's not coming down. And so if you look at the trend, that period keep going up, you know, so people are not transacting or changing houses as often. And that's where the government is playing its part. And they're like, okay, in the short term cash flow side of things, we might make less money because, you know, it's transactional based. But, you know, as the pipeline keeps coming through, you know, on a longer term basis, if you look at six to 12 to 15 to 20 years, we actually make shit ton more money. Right. And so, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. that's definitely yeah. the case. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about one of our favorite topics in terms of developers, builders. Builders, builders, builders. If you've been building over the last two or three years, if you've been a builder or you've been building stuff, oh my goodness, what a roller coaster of a ride it has been. Yes. However, we're seeing some level of stability yes. happening. Yes. We don't have these crazy materials increases. Still have some level of labor shortage. Mm. And that's something, you know, I think that ties back to migration as well. Um, a lot of, a lot of labor was from overseas as well. Yes. So what are you what are you seeing? What does the impact of builders and bu- the building industry sort of stabilizing? What does that mean? I think it's 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 very important. I think um the, the point that you make in relation to tying it back to migration is is the key. But also that the government infrastructures where the infrastructure is coming in quite strong and you know fast that a lot of people who are coming out of the building industry working into residential space are moving more into commercial space or government projects. And so that shortage of labor still exists. It hasn't disappeared because people are redirecting Mm. their energy towards these infrastructure projects. Now, the interesting thing with building industry is that, you know, one of the key things that I look at um, is the number of policies that are being sold um, at a state level for newer buildings, so newer dwellings. Okay, and so if you look at the policy numbers, the policy numbers have been very stable. You know, they were re- they were high, of course, between 2020, 21, 22, and even 23. And so that numbers of policies have you know gone from like 60,000 to like almost 90,000, and you know, topping over, you know, every year. The interesting thing here is that the builders uh, who were supposed to go broke have already gone broke, and so. That stabilization uh, and loss-making business that the builders had, you know, that has been transformed or has been translating into new business. Okay, you know, you know, gone are those days where we are talking about, you know, big giants like Metricon falling, right? And so, builders who never manage their cash flow properly, you know, knows what you know a business downfall looks like, and they've, they've seen that happen. Okay, and so fortunately, unfortunately, they are out of business, but. You know, the pressure lies behind for those who are now remaining in the industry and they still have a lot of pipeline to finish, right? So while the new business might be slower, the pipeline is still quite warm and quite hot. And so they are trying to, you know, quickly get through that pipeline. And so I think builders going out of hot water is a very interesting dynamics because it's stabilizing prices while labor shortage is temporary yeah. my understanding is that that would get better and so that would be one of the key things that would indicate about you know whether we should be investing or should not be investing in in right now yeah i'd say with the builders we because we've done gone through such a rough rough patch with them i mean so many delays uh, builders going bust that sort of thing i mean we're not hearing about these we're sort of at the tail end of those delays i'd say if you're wrapping up a project hallelujah it's coming to an end and 
And the fact is that builders are, again, starting to get back to some level of normality, which will hopefully bring some level of confidence into that space again. We've got more land, you know, land is starting to be, get released. And, you know, people are, they're settling land, they're starting to build. So you're going to see more activity start to come come up from, you know, the bloodbath that's happened yes. in the last few years. Definitely. And that's when you're starting to see, you know, again, those prices, probably prices start to move, move yeah. up. Yeah. Development, is that, what are you seeing in the development space, Moss? Are you seeing that developments, and this is not builders, we're talking about actual developments, more development activity happening, less development activity? I think, I mean, every time I speak to a developer who has a site that is ready to go, I feel that that nervousness is definitely there and that's playing its part, you know, with rising interest rate, build prices still, you know, significantly higher than what they were expecting, you know, say 12, 24 months ago. Um, their appetite to develop has definitely come down, which means that, you know, there is a lot less stock on market. You know, even people are scared from building as well. And so there is not a lot of land sales happening. And so people are like, if you have a fake product, I'll buy it, but I don't want house and land anymore. I don't trust the builders. You know, I don't trust the process. And so there is a lot of that happening as well. And so that constraint is definitely playing its part. You know, you can see, you know, one of the key indicators that we follow here is so building approvals. And you can see a sharp fall in building approvals over the last sort of at least, you know, two quarters. And so it's, it's in- interesting, you know, I say this, that, you know, people who are brave and have seen markets like this before know that the shortage of supply would continue towards the demand pressure, which ultimately goes mm. back into the price increases. And so you will get your prices. And I was having an interesting conversation with my own project manager where, you know, we are looking at a particular project. Um, and the prices are like, you know, thirty to $40,000 versus where the GRV was. It's still profitable, uh, but it does leave a bad taste in your mouth. And so are you brave enough to still go ahead and build it, knowing that the, mu- the muscle memory would mm. come back and the prices would go mm. back to those levels? Or would you just, you know, sit tight and wait for everyone to happen? Now, what do you, what do you think about, you know, some of these impacts, Cheryl? Yeah, I'm seeing... Uh, Developers a little bit jaded. Yes. <laughs> in the, what, what's happened in the last, last sort of two, two years. I, I've had sort of commentary around, I'm just going to step away from building for a little while and just <laughs> develop land and someone else can do, and can do the build. So yes. you're not, you're not exposed to all those uncertainties. Yes. That, that's happened. We've had uncertainties with obviously pandemic, weather. We have bushfires. We have all sorts of things. Australia is the best place to live, mm. but you've got all of these to deal with. Like the most sort of small, medium-sized developers are probably not being as they're a bit more risk adverse. I'd say in that regard, mm. um, probably pulling back a little bit more and looking at more maybe smaller scale developments where there's a quicker turnover. They're not relying so much on pre-sales and things like that for large townhouse developments. Definitely, because and, and I'd say that's probably a prudent thing in the current market because yeah. the success of your project obviously depends on, you know, people purchasing, people having the appetite to purchase. And and where there's low consumer confidence, then that's going to have a knock-on effect. Yes. I'd say that there are definitely, I'm seeing a lot more people, if they're developing, they're doing a, a built-to-rent. Yeah. A built-to-rent model mm. where there's larger focus on cash flow. Yes. 
and less on and, and holding long term mm. in the market, yeah. time in the market, as opposed to relying on on the revenue from sales. Yeah. And I mean, let, are you are you seeing that as well? Let me play the devil's advocate here, right? Because I was talking to a, a person yesterday, and I say to them that while you're holding this particular property, right, at one point five, one point six million dollars that you've acquired, you're getting a rent of say four hundred, four fifty, five hundred on it. While the interest rates are rising, uh, you are eating away into profits technically, right? Because your GRV is mm. not really going up. And so, would it not be in your best interest to start doing the developments? so that you're ready, right? Because ultimately you need to take that yes. exit, right? And so where does this stop? Um, one of the key things that I'm noting at a grassroots level, and this talks to more about the change in markets, is the quality stock is still selling really, really well. Um, I was in seven mm. news in an auction last weekend, and I kid you not, there were more than 55 to 60 bidders in that particular auction. Okay, so there was mm. a lot of, and so if the property is presented right, the property has all the bells and whistles. Yeah. It's in the right market. It is a, an investment grade property. People are still coming out to buy these properties because they know that these prices would not return. I, are you feeling some of those things as well with the change in markets, especially in you know bigger markets? Yeah, yeah. There, there is low stock. There is lower stock. So the quality stuff. There are always going to be people looking. Mm. I want to share then, and, and I'm always of the mindset that you have an abundance mindset and, and you only, you know, when you're selling a property, you only need one person who really loves it to fund. If you've got a, unfortunately, if you don't have an investment grade property, and we talked about this in, in a previous episode, like it's not presented very well, it's not in a great location, it's, it's going to suffer in some way. But if it's, you know, if you're targeting the right market and it's, it's value, then it's going to sell. People are always going to be looking. We've had such huge equity growth over the last few years. There are people that are upsizing. There are people that are downsizing. Yeah. You know, there's money there. There's definitely money there, and people are looking definitely for the right opportunities. Definitely. So I'd say, yeah, I totally agree. Agree with that. And don't feel that you need to make huge amounts of discounting. Yes. Definitely. And I do think the marketing campaign helps incredibly with that. And, and don't give into the fear, right? A lot of people sell in fear, right? I say present your property well um, and put it out there, attract the right sort of buyer, right? And you would get the price. You know, you know it's all about yeah. presenting the property well. And so there is, you know, there were properties selling at 8% interest rate, 9% interest rate, 12% interest rate. So this is not... This is not a doomsday scenario. When people come and say, oh, this is what doomsday look like. It's like, no, no, we are way far away from, you know, what a doomsday look like. This is what a normality looks like. Yeah. From my right. And so if I take this. To we the, had interest rates at 8, 7%. 100%. 100%. And so I think that's a good segue in talking about, you know, media is talking about fixed mortgage rates, rates coming to an end and people waiting for this bloodbath to happen and people like, oh, I'm going to buy properties that are worth a million dollars for $400,000 because that's the psychological thing. What do you think about some of these comments that you see that, you know, there would be a bloodbath with fixed mortgages ending, you know, in May or June? Speaking to a few mortgage brokers, there is going to be strain for quite a few people who, who didn't quite plan yeah. very well. And I'd say, you know, when... In saying that, like the lending policies, when people were borrowing at, at 2 
like the lending policy would would factor into rate increases. Yes. Of you know five, six, seven percent. So they were there. Like they were already like the 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 banks were already starting to tighten lending policy because they knew that this was going to happen. Definitely. So I I'd say you know we've got to take some level of responsibility in in that aspect. That you know that we all knew that these these incredibly low rates, which we never we never seen. I don't even remember when when yes. we had rates that low was was short lived. Yeah. Right, uh, and and to factor into a buffer, whether it's enough um, e- enough equity capital in 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 the property, or the fact that you've just had enough of that buffer, to, you know, if we stretch ourselves too much and overextend, then we're going to find ourselves in a, uh, in a bit of strain. Yeah. But, but strain doesn't necessarily mean it's a bloodbath. Yes. Yes. And we expected a bloodbath in the pandemic. Yes. As well. Yes. And that, that's, really that's so true. That is, a huge that is so, 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 so true. I think if you think about this, um, a lot of the people coming out of even for fixed mortgages, right, they would have buffers built into their risk margins, right? Mm. And so I always think about it in a sense that, okay, any distress sales or truest nature of the distress sales that you're talking about would potentially take eight to 12 months because people have that buffers to basically live this through for the next. So anything that is actually going to happen would probably happen next year, not this year. Okay, so that's number one. Yeah. The second sort of thinking that I have, and this is more on a much more simpleton thinking that I say to people is, you know, if I have four properties, right? Um, and if I am struggling, the first property that I'm going to bring out to the market to sell would be the most crappiest property, right? Because I'd be like, oh, this, is, this hasn't done anything for me. I want to sell this out. And so the one that I don't like, no one likes it, my friend. <laughs> so it's not going to sell, right? And so you see a lot of crap sitting on the market because it's everyone's crap coming out there trying to flock because they don't like it, right? And so it makes it a lot harder where that, you know, while people are saying stock levels are coming back, that's not the same stock. The mix has changed. This is a brand new mix and it's a lot of crap that you shouldn't have bought in the first mm. place, calling in investment properties, especially in that dynamics. And so, mm. yeah, it's, it's a very sort of interesting dilemma that, you know, a lot less quality stock, better quality stock every time it comes in. You know, we are seeing, for example, even right now, yesterday in Adelaide, you know, we were looking at that particular property there were eight offers on that one property and i was like hey are we back to like pandemic levels like what's happening here i thought that the interest rates are rising and people are you know playing poor but that's not the case you know in perth in adelaide you know parts of brisbane as well it's still there you know in those quality stock markets and and there's still a lot of internal migration happening right interstate migration that's that's happening and and i know especially in in places like more so in Perth because from all, all the eastern seaboard where they're going, oh, so cheap, let's move there. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> and the weather's so much better and, and it doesn't rain all the time. So there's a whole lot of interstate migration that's still that's still happening. There's there's there is a mass exodus. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> well, sorry, sorry, Melbourne and, and Sydney. <laughs> that people want to go to places that are have better weather, less traffic. And, and obviously, you know, more affordable in that regard. So yeah. that's pushing those particular markets. We've got markets within markets, like we said. Definitely. Not all the markets are going to be performing at the same time. Yeah. But 
it will be, you know, it's around understanding where the activity is happening in, around Australia. Yeah. And if you, if, if I take this to the next step, you know, for people who are actually waiting for the bloodbath to happen, you know, naturally, you know, I think that these people are there because they are afraid to make mistakes right now. And so they're like, let's wait for the market to bottom out and then we will come in. Mm. And if you think, uh, I quote this quote from Einstein that, you know, the only person who never makes a mistake is the person who has never done anything. And can I add to this that, you know, if if you, the cost of doing nothing means that you are nothing, right? Especially in the real estate sense. Mm. And Mm. so if, if people are playing the weight game and chasing the bottom, what do you say to them, Cheryl? What do you think, you know, is that response to those people who are trying to chase the bottom? What? Trying to chase the bottom? Yeah, look, I mean, I mean, yeah. You can't time the bottom. I mean, you are lucky if you, you do. And, and, and there are going to be certain triggers that you understand, I think, through experience, identifying what a, when, say you're stop trading, you know, the, the market goes this and this, and you're like, oh, at this point where it crosses, that's when I should buy. Yeah. But it, it, you know, the old adage of time in the market, if this is an opportune time to purchase and you're not transacting within the next 12 to 18 or even three to five years, mm. um, you've got good investment grade stock, then, then why not? If it drops a little bit, but then over the next 10 years, it doubles or more definitely then yeah then you've done then you've done well i think it's the cost of waiting right i think one of my mentors i still remember him saying to me that you know he was walking down and this might sound mean to a few people that he was walking down in one of the countries um and there was a board which was a funny board that was there and it was more in relation to people who are waiting and it said or it read that you know you can get a free abortion here but there's a 12 months wait Right. So if you Oh <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Um, There's a whole lot of like moral stuff in, in that in that one. That's interesting. And so if you think Yeah, we of, won't go into that. I think that's another podcast in its own. Yes. And so I think if you take a step back and you think about the opportunity opportunity cost of waiting, some of the impacts that I am seeing with a lot of people that I talk to on a day to day basis is that their serviceability with each interest rate rise continues to go down. And so their ability to buy a quality stock continues to go down. You know, I'll give you a recent example of a, of a person. You know, he came to me late last year uh, and he said, to, he said to me, Moss, you know, I have a serviceability of a million dollars. I can potentially buy two properties. I spoke to him two weeks ago and the broker could not even get him $450,000. And he was struggling. Like, he's like, whoa, where did it go? And it's like, well, you have a lot of equity, my friend, but because you haven't been playing the offset strategy, you know, that boat has now sailed. And so you have to wait for, you know, the risk, the margins to come down or your salary to go up to basically come back into the market. And so he has missed that opportunity of entering into the market completely while trying to chase the bottom, right? And, you know, the, the waiting game is purely for those people who have redraw available to them, who have played this game before. They have money sitting in the offset account ready to go. And, you know, they are the people who are not dependent on the bank banks to, you know, give or borrow the money. They have that borrowing readily available to them. You know, waiting game is perfect for them. The, the, the most important thing in some of these instances where, you know, you're playing against your borrowing capacity, you're playing against your serviceability, is that when the market comes back, and we've seen this time and time again, the market comes back a mm. lot faster 
than the rates coming yes. off. And so by the time yes. you reach your borrowing capacity to actually get into the market, the market is gone. And so, you know, it's, it's like, you know, by the time you're all dressed up, ready to go to the party, done your eyelashes, your tux, your glasses, you know, add a bit of perfume, you realize that the party's ended. That's it. It's gone. Um, That's you dressing up for Mardi Gras there, your eyelashes and your tux all together. <laughs> well, I'm trying to be inclusive, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> No, it's wonderful. I love it. Uh, and so yeah i get i get the analogy there like it, it is like this there's there's a slower drop than there is a, a higher recovery, a faster recovery yes 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 and and that's why you see you know when you talk about markets but in markets that makes a lot more sense right because there are even pockets in perth right now that have gone up by you know more than 15 percent in the last sort of six to eight months even 12 months when you talk about it you know you, talk, you look at Kivana region, you look at Longhampton, you look at the north, you know, around Clarkson, where, you know, we were buying around 420, 450, up to 500. They're all at, you know, 550, 580 mm. sort of price. But even Secret Harbor, you know, we were buying there at 420, 430. Now they're well above 550, 560. And so I'm re- using some of these examples predominantly from Perth because everyone has been starting to talk about Perth. And, you know, we were buying in Perth in, you know, December 21. And we were the first ones to basically start calling on Perth. And so, these are the normal cyclical nature of events that happens. And so people, you know, who have seen these cycles, you know, would pick, pick this up quite quickly. Yeah. Let's talk about the most important thing. And I think this is like epically, everyone talks about every month. And that is the inflation, 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 inflation. Yes. It's going up, it's going up, it's going up, it's costing us money. What is your take on inflation? In- inflation, what we've seen, I think last, last year in its own, there's been sort of an 8% mm-hmm. in- inflation it it is expected to i think pull back a bit but but wages haven't caught up as quickly yes and so we are seeing things that are are more expensive however i'm not seeing we're not seeing people spend on apart from traveling everyone's traveling uh but they're they're we're we're not like the cars if you look at cars right Mm. they're at one point, we had this with this um, problem with waiting for cars and pools and everything else. Mm. Everyone's done that. Yes, <laughs> they've all done that. And they go, "What am I going to spend? I'm going to spend spend on on travel and and Definitely. a lot of people start to spend on on property." So, inflation. I've I've found in general that people get to a point where there's a level of discomfort at the beginning, mm. and then it gets to this point of Normal, a new normality about what what the rates are, and it's. I find that there's this sort of lag in terms of what the true impact of inflation is. I mean, we sort of see broccoli at some ridiculous price, ten dollars ahead, or, yes. or something like that. And at first, it's a big, it is a big shock. I find we we spend less on the unnecessary on the unnecessary things yeah. as well. Definitely. So I, I feel that it is it sort of impacts on our buying routine yes. and the way that and what we're buying and how we're buying and spending yes. on things. Yes. yes. The spending However, pattern the consumer, changes basically. Yeah, the spending pattern, that's the word. That's that's the thing that I'm I'm looking at. And I'm seeing particularly inflation in Australia. I'm not talking about sort of other countries and things like that. Mm. Where it is making things more expensive. Yes. But we tend to almost settle down to a point where you go, this is the new way. This is the new norm. I've just got to yes. 
Yeah. Yes. Yeah. What do you see? While the inflation is come is is slightly coming off, you know, we saw the new numbers coming in at seven percent versus eight percent unemployment going up. You know, one thing to note yeah. in relation to inflation is that Australian currency is still cheaper for people who are dealing in US dollars, right? And so when you mm. look at the full mm. story and the full picture, right? You talk about net migrations who have dealt in you know Australian dollar uh, in US dollars. You know, you're talking about People coming from Singapore, Hong Kong, India, you know, their currencies are a lot stronger, you know, compared to where they yes. were before, right? And so, you know, their, you know, ultimate purchasing power is a lot stronger than a local Australian, right? And so you're right in saying that while the discretionary spending is, is, is in a crunch mode and people, mm. you know, change their spending pattern, a lot of the inflationary impacts actually show up you know eight to 12 months down the track because you can only kill yourself so much you can you stop having that extra coffee that is true. yeah you can yes. stop you know you know eating out but it's not it's not in infinity right and so there is a trigger yes. and usually that trigger happens you know past nine months time past 12 months time where people are like yeah this 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 is not happening this is not this is ridiculous right and so that's where the real mm. stress comes into play you know i think People trying to look for stress right now in the property market due to inflation, and they're not going to see that impact, the true impact of uh, inflation or the rate rises right now. And that. And how do you, I mean, are you seeing that impacting? How are we seeing that impacting on property prices in that regard? Look, ultimately, when you think about inflation, right, there is a few things that comes together at the same time as inflation, okay? So you have to look at the equity markets at the same time. Uh, you have to look at the affordable housing at the same time when you're talking about inflation. You can't just talk about inflation and not talk about these things, right? And so when you see people who are paying more money in rental because the inflation is going up, because the, you know, the, the landlord or the owner of the investment property is charging you more rent, that's playing its inflation. That's, you know, the impacts of them increasing the interest rates or, you know, feeling the burn and passing that burn down to the renters, right? On the other end, if you think about the financial markets and the equity markets where the market is going this, the volatility, you know, the first thing that people think about killing that volatility is buying into things that can absorb inflation, okay? And so those things yeah. are long-term treasury bonds, gold, like, actual gold mm. or property, right? And so while people are not confident on long-term bonds because the return on these are quite significantly lower, mm. no one is going to go mm. out and, you know, mine gold or put all their, you know, portfolio in gold that used to happen before. The property becomes a natural choice. And so every time you would see financial markets taking a dip or, you know, equities market taking a dip, people will jump into property. You would see superannuation. It's trending right now. Why is that? That is because of that reason. People are like, well, I've just lost $4,000 in super or $5,000 or $10,000 in super. So naturally people think, how do yeah. I save my investment? I put it in property. Okay. And so if you look at the holistic picture and you combine all of these together, you realize that the rental pressures would still keep pushing people towards buying. The financial pressures of not getting the returns on the investor side would still keep pushing people in buying that property, mm. right? And so that cycle never ends. You know, naturally everything points down to inflation-proof or inflation-absorbing investments, and that's what it comes down to. And are you then seeing then this roll into 
because you've got people who are moving away from these investments where they might have not seen returns and they're going to be looking at property. Like where are we seeing the banks in, in all of this in their lending policy? Are they providing, you know, we've, we've got both, both ends of the, the, the tightening lending policy. You're not yes. being able to borrow as much. Yes. Um, and what's the flip side? Are we seeing some light at the end of the tunnel there with the yeah. banks? Look, it's interesting, right? So banks are mandated by APRA directing what the banks need to allow for in relation to risk margin. And I know in November, you know, APRA raised that percentage by, or the it's called the capital risk charge, but by a minimum to 1%. Mm. Okay? And so they have to allow for, when they're making an assessment, they have to allow for an extra 1% in your assessment sector, right? And so they have, they indicate every month, you know, whether they're changing that percentage and that gives the banks the ability to basically lend or more money, right? Now, think from a bank's perspective, if you put yourself into the bank's shoes, banks have tremendous amount of money, you know, because people have caught so much growth and taken that money out and put it back into the bank, be it in their offset account, et cetera. So they have tremendous amount of cash flow sitting with them, with the, with, with the government printing the money and that money now stuck into the bank. And so banks are actually dying to give money. And so what I am feeling yeah. and what I'm finding is that there is all these creative ways that the banks are lending this money out to people who shouldn't be getting the, the loans as well. Like I'll talk to this particular mm. example where this person went to major banks um, and could only get a borrowing of 300, you know, go to mid, went to mid tier. And all of a sudden, you know, he could access six fifty seven hundred thousand dollars in today's time. I'm not talking about six months, 12 months before. And so the banks are keen to hand more money to people so that they can keep their returns and keep their profitability going as well. And so it's, yeah, absolutely. It's a very cyclical yeah. nature of things where, you know, the bank still wants the market to continue in the direction that it continues to go. The government wants the market to continue in the direction that it wants to go. Uh, it's the people's confidence that's basically a bit of an anchor point in the market. And it's the floodgates. Absolutely. As soon as you open that floodgates, you know, you would see the rush coming through. Yeah, so so let's sort of wrap back up to the very beginning. We talked about consumer confidence and the whole question and the whole topic about today is around, you know, is it is it a good time to buy? Is this the right time? Do we have the right the the right indicators and the foundations for purchasing or do we just sort of all wave the white flag and just say that's it and then sit tight and see where, you know, if things sort of implode? What are you saying to to your clients that are that are sharing their uncertainty? See, I divide them into two buckets, right? I say owner-occupiers and investors, okay? And mm. so I personally say that this is a perfect time to make a lifestyle choice. <laughs> this is a perfect time, and I'm choosing my words very, very carefully, right? This is a perfect time to make a lifestyle choice because a property that you are going to emotionally buy for, say, $1.5 million is right now selling at a $1 million. And so if you can afford it, it's a perfect time to make a lifestyle choice, right? You know, buying in the yes. markets like this because you know, even if you're playing to your emotions, you're paying a ridiculously low price in areas like Melbourne yes. and Sydney, okay? Because the vendor's expectation has changed. In an investment dynamics, when I'm talking to an investor, be it SMSF, be it in their own personal portfolio, I say to people that you need to understand your risk. You know, you need to mitigate and understand your mm -hmm. risk and ensure that your portfolio can absorb these shocks that, that are there. Right. You know, we've talked about interest yes. rate rises and 
you know, how many interest rate rises are coming through. You know, my expectation and understanding is that, you know, there is at least two or three more interest rate rises based on the inflationary numbers mm. and everything else that we're talking about. Yes, the intensity might be lower, but those rates are there. Okay. And so while your serviceability disappeared, gives you an opportunity to buy right now, buy something that is going to sustain your portfolio rather than just going out in the dark, you know, picking anything. Because gone are those days where you go out in the dark and pick anything because there is a lot of garbage on the market. And so you need to be a lot more careful in picking the right stock, especially in times like today, because there is a lot of, you know, crap on the market right now. On the SMSF side of things, you know, it's all about growth. And so it's all about yield. It's all about growth, you know. And so you can't discount the growth in that sort of notion because SMSF lending right now is sitting at almost like 7%. And so you need to ensure that while your contributions are not getting leaked, you know, towards the holding cost, your rent from the properties is at least covering the repayments and the holding costs out of things. And your principal is basically your repayments or the contributions mm. are basically getting paid towards the overall um, the principal side of the loan. And so those are the three sort of buckets that I'm placing people in and having different conversations. What do you think, yeah. Cheryl? Do you think that it's a good time to buy? I personally think it's a great time to buy. If you can, <laughs> in the less technical, in less technical sense, in the seeing, seeing what's happening in the market, that if you've had, if you've had property previously, and in the least it's different to, if you're an existing home owner, and I said property owner, you've got a lot of equity that's that's sitting in your property. Leverage whatever serviceability that you have and buy in good investment grade areas. If you don't know what they are, then seek out some advice around that or some direction around that because it is around the whole adage of it's time in the market, time in the market, not timing in the market. And the what our good friend Warren Buffett always says, you know, be fearful when everyone's hungry. Is that right? Yes. And be hungry when everyone's fearful. Perfect. And why do we do that? Because if you're waiting for the market to recover, by that point, like there's a lag in the, in that recovery. There's, a, there's, there's something that's happening in recovery and the, the, the media is not always going to pick it up right at the beginning and go, it's a recovery. There's no Definitely. big signage about the recovery. So by the time you've already realized the recovery's happened, it's already sort of at its, its mid to high point and you're in there competing with a whole lot of different people. So 100%. I'd agree. I mean, be, be mindful of, of what you are purchasing, not just purchasing any, any old property. The location obviously needs to be right. Leverage the equity and the serviceability that you have now. And I'd say look for opportunities to earn more. And if it's through your properties where you're renting it out, you're getting a good yield, that's Definitely. one way to earn more. Definitely. You know, whether you can earn more in your own in your own career or you can earn more in business, the more that you can leverage that serviceability is going to be better better for you. Amazing. So I think, you know, I'm I'm seeing great, great stock at the moment mm. in places where like when I say stock, it will be opportunities good opportunities which weren't there before definitely um the markets the markets pulled back a little bit like take that opportunity to ride the wave definitely hashtag sunshine coast yes and i I think brisbane (laughs) queensland melbourne sydney all of them offers great opportunities right now i'm not saying that everyone doesn't i think at the cheaper price point it definitely does but vendor expectation have adjusted massively 
in Brisbane, Melbourne, and Sydney. And so you are exactly right that there is massive opportunities even for development stock right now. And so people who are yeah. keen to transition into that space, I think this is the time. Yes, there would be a bit of pain, you know, eight months to 12 months, but, you know, you would see that pain disappearing quite quickly. I write it out. Write, write it out. Write if it you out. have the ability to write it out and have a strategy, um, I think it's really important that you have a strategy Definitely. and a plan to do so, that you know what you're doing. Just throwing money at things, then this, you know, pay yourself, get your, get your, get your team in order. We talked about team in another episode, your mortgage, your mortgage broker, your accountant, your everyone, your advisors to make sure that you're, you're working on a strategy that's going to actually build you wealth in the long term. 100%. Yeah. I think this is a wonderful advice, Cheryl. Uh, Let's close it at that. One last line, media is here to entertain, not educate. We are here to educate you. Take the advice, listen to the whole podcast. Thank you very much, Cheryl, for contributing so much well today. No, thank you. Thank you, Moss. That was, that was really, really good and said, you know, I'd love to hear what people are thinking and whether it's, you know, having shared what we've shared, you know, has that, has, you know, what was that, does that resonate with you? Are there things that have made your thinking sort of shift Definitely. as well? And, and, you know, the, the intention is to not to necessarily, necessarily change your mind, but it's to sort of influence your thinking as to think broad, more broadly apart from what's in the media. Um, turn off the TV. Like, you know, there's always going to be a whole lot of noise, but look at the facts and the figures and the data. Right? That's what Moss does. 100%. Awesome. Thank you very much. Stay safe. Keep smiling. Keep investing. This is Moss and Cheryl checking out. Adios. Take care. Bye-bye.